Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. I'm a professor at Emory University. This podcast is brought to you by the Emory Marketing Analytics Center. I am joined, as always, at least for the last year, by Mr. Doug Battle. How are you, Doug? I'm well. This is episode number 50, I believe, with me on board. So nearly a year. Episode 50 of non, uh, non-Fanalytics non U content, just of our standard episodes. But yeah, my bracket's totally busted, so I've just been pulling for <laughs> chaos. NFL free agencies going on, and my New York Giants are making some moves. We'll find out in time if those moves pay off. It's fun just to see some activity for your team uh, when, when your team's been bad. And yeah, Georgia football's in spring practice right now, so keep an eye on that as well. Unfortunately, we lost our best player to an ACL right out the gate, uh, which is normal news for a Georgia fan the first week of anything when you're excited. Okay, I, obviously I lost interest in the NCAA tournament following... right. A certain event. Something terrible. Yeah. yeah, something terrible happening. Um, you know, one, one of the things we said in the run-up to the tournament was that it was probably the best playoff. And uh, quickly, you know, obviously, I quickly changed my tune on that. <laughs> the NFL, um, you know, I was almost thinking as, as I was putting my some notes together for today that we should almost do like one of these clickbait kind of sh- uh, <laughs> websites of rating the best off-seasons. Yeah, I like that. But but I But I tend to think that... Okay, hint, hint that the NFL has the best off season. Am I wrong? Um, oh, I'm, I'm. See, I'm such a big NBA off season guy. Because here's my thing. Here's my thing on football versus basketball. Is in the basketball basketball world, like you got a five man starting roster as opposed to 22 players, and so you can make like two moves, and it totally changes the shape of the league. And a perfect example of that, of course, is the Miami Heat going from having just Dwayne Wade and kind of like a bottom Eastern Conference team to all of a sudden having Dwayne Wade and LeBron James and Chris Bosh. So they just added two players, and all of a sudden they're one of the best teams of all time from a talent standpoint, and they're attracting all these free agents. So I love that aspect of uh, the NBA, but we're starting to see more of that, obviously, in the NFL. Of course, Tom Brady last year is the perfect example where one player makes a decision and it changes the whole shape of the NFL. Well, what I love about it... and I kind of want to argue with you a little bit about basketball, but I don't think I have yeah. a real, I don't think I actually have a basis for what I'm about to say. 
somehow in basketball, I feel like hope is less universal. Like if you are a Charlotte fan or a, yeah. you know, the, there's the a lot of Memphis fa- Grizzlies or yeah, yeah. there's a lot of fan bases like an Atlanta fan that yes, it only takes two players to put yourself into title contention, but somehow that doesn't, a lot of cities don't seem eligible for all that. Right. Like, you know, if, if you're the Hawks, you're probably not going to be the team that acquires all those players in free agency. You probably have to build through the draft and it's going to be a long process and it probably won't work. Um, whereas like if you're a Lakers fan, any off season, they're like, Oh, we could acquire every, you know, eligible all-star free agent. Yeah. I, I feel like the Hawks almost uh, team specific almost end up acquiring the guy, the guys that would have given the fan base hope that something really cool was going to happen five years later. It's one of the stranger teams out there. Um, but, but like I said, you know, apart from that, I, I agree with you on the, on the I mean, the, the NFL, maybe the difference to me in terms of, you know, different perspectives, you know, I, I think, you know, you're coming at it almost more as a, you know, what you love as a fan. I'm almost thinking it about it in terms of the content, the off-season content. And yeah. the way the NFL, like, immediately goes from the Super Bowl to starting the run-up to free agency where, you know, fans suddenly, oh, my God, we got this guy coming in. We got that guy. Something's going to change to Mm -hmm. going into the the combine, which is a spectacle, to the draft. They do it beautifully in terms of it's a a soap opera filled with hope, like a roller coaster of hope that – goes on for it feels like months to me yeah and i would say like just on my twitter feed the nfl offseason can be a bigger story than the nba season or the mlb season or the nhl season like on twitter right now this morning i got up and got on there and see a flurry of tweets about certain coaches that are going to attend mac jones pro day instead of justin fields pro day which is an indicator that Mac Jones may actually be drafted third um, and Fields would drop to later. And that has implications for all these other teams. And, you know, how will Mac Jones actually pan out compared to Fields and all the rest? And meanwhile, there's, we're, I mean, we're in the middle of March Madness. We're in the middle of March Madness. We're in the middle of NBA season. Um, and the bulk of the discussion on my timeline is these theoreticals regarding the draft. Yeah, I, I, look, when I got up this morning, I flipped on ESPN and watched some of the morning shows. And you're right. The NFL is in offseason, and the NFL is at least half of the story. The the trades that have gone down, the free agent signings, how this is starting to position people for moving forward in the draft. Um, yeah, and of all the major sports leagues, they're the furthest from actually being in season. That's so far out from now, and it's still dominating the you know the the news coverage. Well, and it's dominating the news coverage in in terms of player moves versus you know yeah. Major League Baseball is about a week out for yeah. you know they're going to have you know I think a mixture in terms of the level of fans. I think it's going to vary across the league, but this is the closest thing we've had to normalcy since COVID since the COVID pandemic really hit. And I would say Major League Baseball is story number three. After the, I, I think right now it's NFL 
uh, NFL offseason moves, uh, sort of people jockeying to draft quarterbacks. And let, let's be realistic, for the opportunity to draft quarterbacks that only pan out about, you know, what do you think, a quarter of the time, a third of the time? Yeah. Um, and, and that is the massive story, and everything else kind of – and we, we got a first-tier sport and we got second-tier sports at this point, which to me is always a strange situation, but I think it's where we're at these days. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned how often they actually pan out because we look back in time to years where all the buzz and all the coverage is over this, and we spend a whole offseason talking about who's yeah. going to acquire this generational talent that's going to change the, the shape of the league, and it's Vince Young who's, who's out of the league in a couple years. Every year, yeah. every year, it's uh, you know the the hype that surrounds. I, I wish I had a list in front of me, but you know, oh, you know, it, it's the be- people. We got to trade up to get Marcus Mariota. We yeah. got to get we got to get Winston from Florida State. We've got to you know um, who, who's the guy that the uh, the Reds Dwayne Haskins Dwayne Haskins uh, Marcus Russell. <laughs> yeah, M- Mitch Trubisky. Here's right? one, Brady I mean, Quinn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jimmy Clausen. Well, I mean, it, and you could Johnny keep going Manziel. Back and back. Johnny Manziel Sorry? was like a Johnny Tim Manziel. Tebow. Tim Tebow was a first rounder. Well, I go. I actually have a slide in uh, when I teach sports analytics that um, goes back to the all time draft bust. Do you have any idea who I've got there? Oh, it's a quarterback. I hold up. Think, think, Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf. Yeah. It, <laughs> And, and we, we look, we see this, we see this every year. I, I think if you just pulled a list of, you know, the the first round draft picks at quarterback, and then went back and looked at the news coverage, it's kind of shocking how seldom it how seldom it turns out. And but but it's it's the beautiful thing about fandom. It, it also shows you, I think, something about let's say the challenges of decision making. Mm-hmm. Because while the fans get involved in this hype, you know, guess what? So do the teams, and I think the teams talk themselves into uh, perennially reaching for quarterbacks. Um, now they may not have a choice, right? I mean, if if the way the NFL works, the way competition works, is that you have to have that elite talent, then maybe you really do have to overinvest and overpay to be eligible to become an elite team. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the line of thinking in the NFL. Um, it's crazy to think to even. Players that did pan out, um, and and yet did not have the drastic effect on a team that you may have expected. I think Andrew Luck was a guy that we thought this guy might be the best quarterback of all time. I remember them comparing all these different quarterbacks. You know, he's got the brain of Peyton Manning, but he's got the arm of this guy, and he's got the wheels of this guy, and he had a really good career. But did it amount to anything for the Colts? You know, did it amount to? a decade of dominance that maybe people foresaw in a Tom Brady-like career. Same with Matthew Stafford at the Lions. Of course, he inherited um, an even worse situation there. But a lot of times, there's there's all this buzz, and you get the guy, and he does pan out, and your team is still a bad team. And it, it takes a lot in the NFL to transform a franchise, a lot more than just one player uh, in, in most cases. Well, and the one that's sort of catching my eye today, and especially in terms of, you know, thinking back in time, is this discussion about Zach Wilson. Yeah. 
Have you seen the? I think it was all over Twitter the the throw he, he made, made that throw, they, rolling left off his back foot and right on the money against no defense. Yeah, I saw it. So against the motion of his body, he threw against the motion of his body, hit the receiver. I don't know, thirty, forty years down the field on a in a in a practice scenario, right? Right. And and so now this is a generational talent that is needed by what team? The Niners, New York Jets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think the of the New order York- of the draft. Yeah. Well, and and look, I, I total sympathy because it seems to be changing on a daily basis in deep in terms of people moving around. When I saw the Zach Wilson story, the only thing I could come back to think about because I re- I remember um, watching. Sam Darnold's pro day. I was on ESPN. going to say the same exact thing, and people were like, "Holy smokes, have you seen these throws he can make?" You know, in the rain. In right? the rain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I remember seeing that, and it's crazy that the Jets are the team that took him, and now they're being. Uh, I don't know. They're. I mean, of course, they could have very different careers, right? This is just one, one similarity. Um, but it is interesting that those two had such great pro days on their home turf thrown against no defense at all, where you don't have to make decisions. That is such a huge part of being a quarterback in the NFL. And it's just pure throwing ability. Um, And and both are tremendously gifted in that area. No doubt. There's something to it in terms of, I mean, so I I think I, and look as, as outsiders, as fans, we don't have access to the level of data that these teams have, right? We're, we're not going to be in a position to get sort of the full biometric data on these players, to sit down with them in a room, to talk to them, to truly, to truly understand. At least, you know, from my perspective, I'm sort of information poor. But when I look at it, I think Sam, so suddenly the the physical talent, the mental talent, the leadership ability that Darnell had a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. it's, it's like we kind of, well, you know, that we were we were wrong, right? Somehow we misestimated that. But this year, this year we got the guy, right? Yeah. Th- this year we know better. And that strikes me as a really strange kind of decision-making. Now, I, I think the other thing that you could add to this argument is, in some ways for the Jets, there's a logic to it in terms of the way the rookie contracts work, that with, with Darnold, you're going to have to give the guy a raise. So why not, if you've decided he's going to be a middle-of-the-run talent, why yeah. not try again? Roll the dice again. Another in a cost-controlled environment. Yeah, I, I think there's uh, there's some good logic to that line of thinking. Zach Wilson is just an interesting one to me because I didn't hear about him much until halfway through the season. All of a sudden, people were talking about him being the third quarterback, um, and now people are talking about him being the second quarterback and in, in number one. Justin Fields has kind of been forgotten somewhat and he's a guy that i think most years would go number one overall but it's amazing to me going back to sam darnold how quickly we discard these quarterbacks uh josh rosen sam darnold dwayne haskins a guy that was highly sought after that people as a giants fan people were saying the giants are fools for taking daniel jones when they could have haskins everybody wants haskins and now uh, nobody cares for Haskins. Like he was worth so much two years ago when he had not even stepped on a field in the NFL, and or three years ago, however long it's been, and now he's worth just about nothing as far as the assets you could get in return for a player like that. Well, the, 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 that's a great group of names. Um, I, I would add Trubisky to that as well. Yeah, 
Um, what what is Haskins prospect? Where Haskins to the Steelers. Haskins to the Steelers. Well, yeah. you know that's a talk about a great place to land in terms of stability. But you know Rosen's another priming. You know, so so if, if this is the logic, and, and let's you know feel free to attack me on what I'm about to say or counter argue this. The quarterback is a different position in some ways in that it's a position where with experience, the game is likely to slow down, Mm -hmm. right? The idea that you bring in a rookie quarterback and you let them watch the pro game and you slowly integrate them. I I think that mentality has disappeared a little bit over the last few years. And it's Mm -hmm. more like we got to get this asset on the field and get them proven as quickly as possible. But if that long time old school conventional conventional wisdom is true, then it's kind of curious that we give up on these quarterbacks mm-hmm. after a couple of, after maybe a single bad year with a terrible team and not a lot of talent surrounding them, and we just move on. So mm-hmm. often when I think about free agency, I think about the idea of finding inefficiencies in the market. Mm-hmm. So finding places where um, other teams do not want to invest their money. And, and so right now in the quarterback, what's, what are the top quarterbacks getting, Doug? You know? A lot. <laughs> Dak, yeah, Dak a Prescott. Lot. I mean, Dak Prescott, how much he signed for? $40 million a year. Yeah. Four, 160 over four years. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. Salary caps at about $180 million, So <laughs> it's, uh, that, that's an enormous chunk out of this. Yeah. Okay, so everyone wants a... Look, Kirk Cousins is a free, agency, free agent. Dak Prescott. The top quarterbacks are going to get those kind of dollars. Perhaps more, right? Maybe more next year. And so there's, there's kind of two questions. So uh, at the top end of the market, maybe you're going to have to pay 40 or $45 million for a elite or potentially elite quarterback, or you can pay, I want to say Trubisky got about a million and a half in, in Buffalo. Yeah. And so you can do, or what, what did, um, what did the new England, what did new England pay Cam Newton last year? It was about that kind of number. Very little. Uh, yeah. It, nothing compared to what he was being paid in his MVP years, which were not, I mean, that, that was just a few years back. So, so it strikes me that if you're looking for inefficiencies in the market, that you're more likely to find them at the bottom end mm-hmm. with the guy that had elite physical tools, maybe didn't get along with a coach, didn't fit into a system. And now you essentially get those guys for almost nothing Versus spending forty, you know, thirty-five million dollars on Kirk Cousins or forty million dollars on Dak Prescott. When, frankly, to be honest with you, Doug, I'm not convinced that those guys were ever elite talents. Certainly not Cousins. Um, Prescott's a little bit more debatable, but yeah, okay, but on, it's still on, debatable, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think. On the on the flip side, I guess a counter argument to what you're saying is when was the last time we had a Josh Rosen or a one you know Mitch Trubisky, one of these guys that you're able to get for two million dollars a year, um, come in and lead a team to where they want to go? It's like teams know the reason why the, there's such a value discrepancy, um, even though even with like a somewhat marginal difference in performance between like a Trubisky. And uh, well, the top fifteen quarterback in the league is the fact that those like the formula in the NFL seems to be in in the modern day, 
you've got to have an elite quarterback and you've got to protect them and you've got to give them weapons. And if you have those things, you've got a shot. Um, so if you, if you start off by investing even just a little in a non-elite quarterback and a guy that is a known commodity, Josh Rosen or, or Sam Darnold even, um, it's like you're setting your ceiling low, I think, to some of these teams. I think that's how they view it. And I okay, and I think that's a that's a compelling argument. Now let me let me throw a different case, different scenario at at, at you. Okay, so it, it seems like you need that elite talent to break through and have real success in the NFL. You got to have a top five or a top ten quarter, whatever you want to define right, as elite, right? Right. Um. So can guys grow into? Can they develop into guys that you can win with? You know, maybe it's. Three years of experience, maybe it's five years of experience, maybe a second start. You know, can you can you develop that kind of journeyman quarterback that is actually going to be effective? Okay, Let, let's think about the the Bears for just a second. So the Bears went out and they signed Andy Dalton. Okay, so is Andy Dalton going to be a quarterback that's going to take you on a deep run into the playoffs? Not likely. No. Okay. Now, so why bother? Um, well, here's one kind of obvious reason, uh, but how many of those quarterbacks are there and how many of those teams are there? Like there's 30 teams or 32 teams yeah. and how many quarterbacks we have feel like are elite, like maybe 10. Okay. Okay. So let, let me, let me just play a different scenario and, and I'm, I'm full of, I'm full of crap on this probably cause I've never seen a team do it. Yeah. Here, here's my quarterback strategy that I'd like to see someone do. Yeah. Okay, so I'm the Chicago Bears. I'm going to go out and I'm going to sign Cam Newton, Mitchell, Mitchell Trubisky. I'm going to re-sign my guy, and I'm going to go out there and acquire Haskins. And hope so one got, of them, one of them, kind of pans out. Yeah, I mean, it's like I feel like I know the upside of Andy Dalton. He's going to give me somewhere between five and nine wins, right, and maybe squeak into the playoffs. That's what I think, right? With those three guys. I don't know what I'm getting. I, I might have a complete disaster, but maybe the the physical talents on those, you know, maybe something clicks over time and, and they and they become something. Mike, I think we've seen your strategy before, and I think <laughs> I think it was the Cleveland Browns <laughs> for a long stretch of time that kept trying that strategy. <laughs> but no, I, I I I'll tell you what I would like to see. More than that, I'm a big fan of trying out some of these younger quarterbacks that have not seen the field yet, where we haven't seen their performance. A guy, of course, I'm biased to Georgia, but I was incredibly impressed with Jacob Eason as a prospect from high school, watching him in college all the way through. He's one of those guys that like would tear it up on a pro day and, and you would think was the best quarterback of all time, um, just watching him throw it. And His father was an all-time great college quarterback. I, I part of me thinks it's a different Tony Eason though. The uh, sports trivia error rate will be higher than the uh, psychological and econometric theory yeah. error rate on this show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will, I'm going to fact check that one. But uh, but Jacob is a guy that like he sat behind Philip Rivers this last year, and who they just acquire Goff to the Colts or they they acquire uh, no Wentz 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 to the Colts or it seems like Wentz will probably be the starter. Um, but guys like that, guys that 
I know for the longest time it was AJ McCarron. He was playing behind somebody at the Bengals and then the Bills, and everybody kind of wanted to see him get his shot. Um, but I think there's probably a pretty big inefficiency with those guys knowing that and thinking back to the guys that played behind Tom Brady that went on to be starters. I mean, Jimmy Garoppolo was not a valued player for a while where he could have been acquired for very little. And then all of a sudden he gets his chance to play and all of a sudden he's very valuable. He's worth a lot. And he's one of those free agent quarterbacks that teams are throwing all this money at. Um, there, there was another, I mean, that was Tom Brady at one point behind Drew Bledsoe. And that was um, the Brady had a backup who I'm blanking on right now that had the opportunity to play for a little bit and ended up signing a big deal and, and you know, making a career out of his opportunity. Um, but yeah, backups in the NFL that have never started. Cause we've seen that even at the high school and college level. Um, for example, Kyle Trask never, he played behind a really electric quarterback and Derek King all through his high school career, never played uh, Florida signed him just because of his upside because they thought, well, we don't know what we have, but he's a big kid. He's got a good arm and you know, the guy he's been behind is really, really good. But so it's like, he could still be really good. And, and never have played, and he he had a tremendous college career. I think, I think this is a good path to go down. If you were, if you are a, an NFL general manager, you're trying to play the quarterback game, where it's really difficult, even if you're picking in the top five or the top ten, to get a guy that ends up being that type of elite talent. So it's almost like you have to take some chances. You have to draft high, but you also have to take some chances. Mm-hmm. And so quarterbacks that are you know, don't get to see the field because there was another entrenched starter and they never got a chance in college, Mm -hmm. but they had great physical talent, backups in the NFL. I I think you're dead on. I mean, I I think we're totally consistent with maybe some of our thinking about this. Mm -hmm. I would also say that, um, you know, it plays through in in the, the draft as well, that, you know, given the difficulty in all this, maybe teams should draft a quarterback in the top three rounds the importance of that position somewhere in the top three rounds every two or three years when they are without an elite quarterback. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they have to roll the dice more and sort of bring more players into the top of the funnel. I also want to make an announcement that I am indeed incorrect about Tony Eason, that there was another Tony Eason who played <laughs> college football for Notre Dame during the, what is it? 85 and 86 seasons and is the father of Indiana Colts quarterback Jacob Eason. Now, honestly, it makes me less of a Jacob Eason fan. That <laughs> there is not a connection to the University of Illinois. Oh man. I, I just with Eason and players of that of that stature and caliber, I'm always I would rather like if I'm the Pittsburgh Steelers, I'd rather go make a run at a guy like Jacob Eason who has not seen the field but who's developing you know, behind the scenes and who's got a lot of tools and it's just, it's taking him a little bit longer to put it together. He didn't come into the NFL like ready to start. Um, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a really, really high upside. Whereas Haskins, it's like, yeah. I feel like you kind of know after seeing him, like who he is, the kind of player he's going to be. And so I, I think the value for those players is like, yeah, there's there's an inefficiency in one, you know, on one hand where, you know, one year they're worth you could have traded that draft pick that took him for a ton of assets. And then the next year you can get him for next to nothing. Same with Josh Rosen. Um, but it, it's kind but, of a sunk cost at that point. It's also the same physical capabilities, just one year. Of, right. 
of information that you know one, one additional data point, and suddenly all the physical capabilities are discounted. I, I, as we're having this conversation, I think back and look. Whenever I think about quarterbacks, I go back old school to the Bill Bar, the Bill Parcells rules for drafting quarterbacks. And there, there's different versions of these things. It's you know one rule was he had to the quarterback had to win let's say 20 games while they were in college. He had to graduate, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What the rules were really about is that the guy had to show commitment in terms of graduation, had to show leadership, had to show effectiveness. Now, I think when Parcells was drafting, this was before there were really significant constraints on rookie contracts. Mm -hmm. And so if you took a quarterback at the top of the, the draft, you were likely going to have to pay them really significant dollars and so Parcells' rules were really about reducing risk. Mm-hmm. I think the world has changed now. Yep. And with these cost-constrained constraint, these uh, cost-constrained player contracts for the rookies, that maybe you want to move in the opposite direction of what Parcells was doing and look for guys, and this is totally what you were saying, that you know, guys that didn't get a fair shot. So Eason. Georgia had a remarkable run in terms of recruiting quarterbacks, right, Doug? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was he, f- five star after five star, and they decided to play the four star. Yeah. And, right? and he, you know, Easton had beat those guys out prior to injury. And so it's, yeah. it's like, well, he, I mean, I honestly thought if he never was injured at Georgia and if he had the same career that he was on the trajectory to have before an injury, which he fully recovered from and does not affect him at all um, to this day you know, that he would have been a top five pick because he was six six. He was number one quarterback out of high school. After his freshman year, if you looked at because they do mock drafts for several years out, after his freshman year, every mock draft for the year that he was coming out, after after his junior year at Georgia, had him going number one, number two, number one, number two, number three, number one. Um has to sit out a year because of transferring. And then he's all of a sudden thought of as this he got beat out. You know, he got yeah. beat out by Jake Fromm, and Jake Fromm's not the greatest NFL prospect. So Eason, by default, has to go after or be in the same kind of tier as Fromm as an NFL as an NFL uh, prospect. And so I, I think that really hurt the optics with a player like him. But that's where I thought there was a lot of I thought there was a huge inefficiency um, in where he was drafted. And that's not to say he's going to pan out, but it is to say like you have. I thought he had the same upside as a lot of guys that go in the top five every year at the quarterback position. Um, and you have the opportunity to take that kind of upside at a, at a much later point in the draft where you're giving up less and, and you know, you're risking less. Well, and I think what you're, I'll rephrase what you're saying that in a way there's a call for being a little more, more nuanced in terms of interpreting the data. Mm-hmm. Right. So East Eason comes to uh, Georgia has a great freshman year, right? Mm-hmm starts takes you guys to a ball game wins what nine ten games yeah and he i think the thing that maybe maybe 11 12 games right yeah no yeah, i wish um the thing <laughs> um, that stood out about his freshman year was he was he was really he was playing on a team that he had to kind of carry the team yeah um a team that had not had a quarterback and a ton of playmakers in in the previous years and he was very clutch early right yeah. out first game of his career led a comeback off the bench Second game or third game of his career through a game winning pass as time expired. Fourth game of his career had a Hail Mary 
um, with 10 seconds left in the game that the team went on to lose Ooh. because they gave up a Hail Mary and everyone just kind of discredited him for the incredible clutch performance he had in that game. Um, and so I, I felt like a lot of his career was just discredited because of you know being hurt and getting beat out or his team losing a game where he actually played really clutch um and, and so in that sense there that's where I, I saw kind of an inefficiency with the the way well, information was being interpreted and, and that's that's it right so it's like he lost his starting job because he was injured and the coach didn't want to sort of make the switch back because Fromm was having a remarkable Season, well, and right? it was really just that the team was having a remarkable season, and yeah. they don't want to change well, any variables. And and that's fair. So yeah. the the team goes on a run, so he doesn't get his job back. It means he's sat out a year of playing, which I think is really difficult. You know, I I don't know that I've seen a lot of analytics on the impact of sitting out a year, but especially at that age, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's fundamentally changing a young person's life, right? right. From playing football every weekend and being the, the starter to being the guy holding the clipboard watching yeah. and holding the clipboard. Yeah. He then trans and tell me if I get in the timeline, right. He then transfers to Washington and has to sit out another season. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now he's got two years of rust plays one season and then goes to the pro. Is that right? Pros? Is mm-hmm. that correct? Okay. Well that is and on top of that. And you know, I don't know how many coaching changes there have been, but at least he had, two different offensive coordinators throughout his career. Mm-hmm. So he's got these massive disruptions and, you know, from all sorts of directions, I think you're probably dead on that that kind of information should be taken into consideration. In some ways you kind of got to view the actual data in terms of productivity under that, you know, from that lens of this is a, look, this is a very young person. Uh, you know, I've got kids in this age range, yeah. uh, and he's responding to it and still playing at a relatively high level. So it is this kind of and, and look, and maybe this is the same kind of thing with with a guy like Haskins. And um, and I, I'm just sort of picking on him because I'm thinking sort of the the guys with immense physical skills. Right. I mean, Sam that, Sam Darnold with the yeah. Jets is kind of in that category as well. Which, by the way, I I feel like if you're the Jets and you put Sam Darnold and Zach Wilson out and have a pro day together, both of them right now, like who's going to be the more impressive prospect for your team moving forward? I don't know. I don't, you know, it's like everyone discounts what Sam Darnold did in his pro day because of, like you said, the information we've gathered since then um, and the performance of he and his team since then. But still a you know a lot of upside on that kid and that's kind of always been the case with him has been upside and, and it's like maybe in the right situation maybe with the right coaching and the right system um he excels uh but you know again once franchises feel like they know the trajectory of a player if it's the quarterback position and the trajectory doesn't feel like it's going in the right direction uh that that player is is their value just drops rapidly yeah I, I just looked it up quick here so sam darnold's contract so i mean i guess you know th- this is the question you know so he made he made decent money right as the uh i think he was the number two pick or number two or number three pick mm-hmm. um what i wonder about and, and i don't know this offhand and maybe you've read something or heard something what is his expected uh salary going to be 
over the next couple of years. So I just pulled up something called Spot Track, and they've got listed for next year $18 million um, for, for 2022. So is Sam Darnold in going to be that sort of range on, on the free agent market of a $20 million a year guy? Whereas a rookie quarterback is going to be a, you know, two million dollar a year guy, yeah. and, and so is this a, is this a salary cap management decision? Yeah, uh, very well could be. I have no idea what Donald's value is going to be. I want to. I certainly want to pay twenty million dollars a year uh, for him as as my team's quarterback. But, um, but that's that's an excellent point. I mean, in, in sports, especially. In the NFL, if you can find yourself a quarterback that can perform at an elite level that's a that's young, that's on that rookie contract, it provides you an advantage even against a team like the Chiefs that has Patrick Mahomes because he's eating up their salary cap and their assets apart from the quarterback position are limited. Whereas if you're a team, I remember and I remember when it was Mahomes, uh, not too long ago, or when it was um Deshaun Watson or when it was, you know, Josh Allen, like a lot of these guys when Russell Wilson going way back, I mean, that Seahawks team was able to build an incredible defense because quarterback was taken care of and they weren't having to spend so much of their cap space on the quarterback position. And all of a sudden when all the other elite teams were putting all their eggs in that basket, they were able to fill out the rest of the roster a lot better. We see that in sports all the time. I know with the Warriors, uh, part of the reason they were able to stack up so much was because Stephen Curry was on, was on a rookie contract. Um, Stephen and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson were all on early, early career contracts uh, for such a long time that they were able to fill out the rest of the roster and overpay, frankly, for some players like Andre Iguodala. You know what, though? I think that that tends to be something that, like, everyone knows, right? Everyone, yeah. everyone knows that with, with salary caps, there's, a, there's an issue with devoting too much money to a, to a position group or to a player. But I feel like that ends up being hidden down the road. And that when fans then complain about the team performance, they seldom go back and go, well, it's because we hired this, we signed this, this quarterback that mm -hmm. ate up 25%. And so we, we, we had to skimp on the, on the line or on the receivers or on the defense. So it ends up being kind of a, a hidden thing that fans may not complain about going forward. Mm -hmm. They might complain about the team and well, they'll say, say we need well, to, you know, we need to surround him with more talent. We need. I mean, and, and then, he deserves better than this. You see it with Russell Wilson. He, when he was on his rookie contract, that team was stacked, and then they sign him after winning a Super Bowl. They sign him to this huge contract that eats up a huge chunk of their cap space, and then ever since then, all I ever hear from Seahawks fans is, "Man, we gotta, we gotta get more talent around Russell Wilson. Like he's gonna leave us. We need to trade, or we need to sign a big free agent, or we, you know, we need to draft skill players." But well, we also need to fix the offensive line. But also, our defense needs to get better. Like you hear this from fans all the time of teams that have overpaid quarterbacks, uh, or, or well, let's, not maybe not even overpaid, but market value quarterbacks that are elite quarterbacks. Well, let's switch back to uh, let's, in terms of this conversation. Let's switch back to Dallas for a second. Uh, between uh, Ezekiel Elliott and Dak Prescott. Those two players are going to account for about thirty percent of the Cowboys' salary cap. 
Yeah, and I honestly think the Cowboys' best window was when those two players, because there was a time when those two players were on their rookie contracts at the same time, and all of a sudden you're getting a top 10 running back, probably top, I mean, he was really number one running back at one point, um, and a top 10 quarterback for next to nothing, and then the rest, you know, they're able to spend on receivers and the line and the defense and, and all the rest. Now, so much is invested in those players. I wouldn't be shocked in a couple of years to be hearing, man, it's a shame that the Cowboys wasted, you know, this era with, with this great running back and this great quarterback, but they didn't have an offensive line or, but they didn't have anybody to throw to, or, but they, they had such a great offense, but they just, they never invested in their defense. We see it all the time. I think Packers fans complain a lot about uh, Aaron Rodgers not having enough weapons or, or that front office, not surrounding him with enough players. Um, just about any quarterback that's on that kind of contract is in that position. And I think this year we saw the first glimpse of what it, the future might look like for Mahomes when we saw him running for his life in the Super Bowl. Now he's on, you know, he's off his rookie contract and it's like maybe they're not able to f- surround him. Maybe he's not able or they're not able to to put a phenomenal offensive line in front of him or maybe they're not able to have the best receiving core in the league or, or still a high quality defense in a couple years here. Um, it's it's a blessing and a curse having those quarterbacks from a financial standpoint. Well, the reason I the reason I went to the Cowboys is because in the case of the Cowboys, the person that gets the blame is going to be very obvious, right? <laughs> Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones. Yeah. And it makes me think. So, in terms of NFL free agency, I will always harp on this concept from behavioral economics of the winner's curse. The basic problem there is the the team that values a player the most is going to offer them the biggest contract, and with 30 teams potentially bidding, there's going to be a real tendency to overpay, yeah. right? Because you, the, the person with the most optimistic valuation, they get the guy. I'm almost wondering that there's, we need like a different kind of, uh, it's something, like, something we got almost got to call like the media curse. And so did Jerry Jones have much of a choice, or do you think he felt like he had a choice in terms of paying Elliott and then paying Prescott? No. He he had very little leverage in that situation. And I think and, and I think media- bringing on Andy Dalton maybe made him feel yeah. some sense of like, well, let's see how he does. And and if if the team does just as well, then all of a sudden we'll have some some leverage. And we've seen that before. I know uh when Le'Veon Bell was holding out, James Conner um really performed at an extremely high level for the Pittsburgh Steelers and all of a sudden they had all the leverage in the world. So I think Jones probably helped hoped for that with, with the Andy Dalton acquisition. Um, but no, he, he, the media, the players, I mean, he would have been looked at as totally blowing the whole situation. Had he let either player get away, regardless of how much he had to pay to keep them. It's almost forced into rolling the dice that these two guys are yeah. going to be the, uh, the next Troy Aikman and Emmett Smith, mm-hmm. and, and take them to that, uh, take them to that promised land. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'll make one last comment, at least from my side, in terms of NFL free agency. My brother is a big Chicago Bears fan. Mm-hmm. The Andy Dalton signing was soul crushing to him. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, and so it's uh, it's it's ten million dollars, and I think he speaks for the. And look, maybe it'll work out great. Maybe they'll get to the playoffs. But it just in this in this period of hope and this wheeling and dealing where things are going to get fixed, when teams do the 
almost the reasonable thing, the the safe thing to just kind of maintain something. Oh my god, it's it's just a killer to the fans. Yeah, um, I've been in that position before. There was a time when the Brooklyn Nets, who I pulled for as a kid because I pulled for Vince Carter and I just kept pulling for the Nets, but the Brooklyn Nets had positioned themselves for years to make a run at LeBron James when he became a free agent. Every move they made was clearing cap space, acquiring players at certain positions that they thought he would like to play with. And that summer came, and they were one of the big teams that was in contention. Everyone was talking about it. And I remember hours before LeBron made the announcement, the Nets announced that they had signed Travis Outlaw, who played the same position, (laughs) and they were paying him like $20 million a year, like way overpaying for him. And everybody kind of knew, okay, they missed on LeBron, and now they're having to save face and just try to sign anybody at that position to fill the spot. Um, I, I feel like that's probably the same feeling these Bears fans have that we're expecting a off season of signing Deshaun Watson. I did not know that story. I did not catch that one. But what a great media, what a great communication strategy story. <laughs> the, the fans are all on edge looking for LeBron. You, you know you're not getting him, so you you put out the Travis. What what'd you say, Travis, Travis Outlaw, Outlaw to yeah. to blow up LeBron James' spot? Yeah, it. Um, I don't know that that story's really circulated. That was just my experience as a fan of the Nets. And I, I think there's yeah. that story hasn't been put out there because the Nets didn't have any fans at the time, particularly right after moving to Brooklyn. And of course, now they have all the old Golden State Warriors fans. But <laughs> but uh, but it was soul-crushing, to say the least. And I, I feel for the Chicago Bears fans because I know many who were on Twitter months ago or even weeks ago um, talking about how this was the year they were going to sign an elite quarterback. It was going to be Deshaun Watson being traded to Chicago, and and Chicago was going to be back. Okay. Well, like I said, I think it's the best off season in sports. Uh, you, you think it might be number two? We can disagree on I, this. You know, Mike, over the course of this episode, looking, I think the NBA is my favorite free agency in all sports. Uh, but when you take into account the draft, free agency, the combine, the media coverage, the NFL as a whole, as a full product, that offseason cannot be beat. It is the top offseason in all of sports. Well, then let's say this. Major League Baseball really, you know, Major League Baseball might have the worst offseason in terms of professional sports at this point, in terms of it just not capturing the excitement of the fans. And I, look, I when when I say stuff like that, I think it's too you know it's too easy to say I'm criticizing a given sport. I'm, I'm saying Major League Baseball they might have the most potential left on the table in terms of creating year round soap opera drama, excitement, hope, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a very glass half full way of looking at it, Mike. <laughs> okay, so Doug, <laughs> as we uh, near the end. Any last words this week? Looking forward to some more college basketball. I will say, and we talked about how college basketball is the best playoff. It's the only playoff, in my opinion, that becomes less interesting as it goes on. I think that first round opening opening weekend where there's 16s playing ones and 15s playing twos and, and there's eight different games going on at once and you're able to just flip to the last 30 seconds of every single game is the peak of college basketball. The further in it gets and the more 
mid-majors that are eliminated and and the more it kind of starts to look like okay are we going to end up with Gonzaga versus Baylor um the less intriguing it is the less games there are there's less buzzer beaters there are and, and so it is an interesting playoff the NBA like the finals is the pinnacle the NFL of course the Super Bowl is the really the pinnacle of all of sports college basketball I think it picks back up in the final four but I think after those first two rounds like sweet 16 elite eight unless you're a fan of one of those teams, it's maybe not as interesting as, as it was early on in the tournament, especially when your bracket's busted, and, and mine certainly is. And I'll sort of just keep my mouth shut. When you are a fan of a number one seed that loses on the first weekend, you don't, I, I don't want to watch because even, even though I love the game, I don't want to watch because I'm just it's, it's sour grapes. I'm just disappointed. Every time I turn that TV on or see highlights, it reminds me of what has went wrong. It's sort of the, you know, the, the the curse of intense fandom at this point, where it's like, yeah, no, done. <laughs> there is always more at www.fandomanalytics.com. So until next week, thanks for checking in with us.